0: good morning. So I should probably introduce myself for those of you who may not know me. My name is Justin James and I'm one of the elders here at Salem and I'll be bringing the message this morning. Uh, But first, let me uh, say a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we look into your word, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come into our midst and soften our hearts to receive the truth from your word that you have to teach us today. I pray that you would help us to be willing to hear difficult teaching then you would use your word to help us to live lives that are pleasing to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I'm gonna begin by asking you to do something. What I'd like you to do is to take a moment to think back on a time while you were growing up when you got in trouble with your parents. I know it may stretch some of your imaginations because maybe none of you ever got into trouble, but I'm guessing that all of you did at least once. Uh, Now, I'm not talking about something small like forgetting to do your chores. I mean like big time trouble, like perhaps the worst trouble you were ever in. Have you got it? Okay, so I want to share a story from my life, that is probably the most trouble I was in growing up, so you're in good company. Um, so here's the story. When I was about 11 or 12 years old, my brother and I and our friend Jesse, we used to play together downstairs while my mom was busy upstairs. The basement was kind of you know, our zone, like where we could kind of be free and do kid stuff. Maybe you have a spot like that in your house. Um, so anyway, on this particular day, we decided that it would be fun to go camping. Um, but since we didn't have a tent, what we did is we took a table, as kids were wont to do, and we put like, blankets and sleeping bags over it to kind of drape the space and create a nice, dark, tent-like thing in our basement. Um, so, so far, our camping adventure was off to a good start. Now, before I continue, I need to stop and issue a warning. Uh, kids, do not try this next part at home. Let me say it again, do not try this at home. What I'm about to describe to you is both unwise and unsafe. Are we clear? Okay. <laughs> Uh, so, in order to effectively use our makeshift campsite, well, we, decide, we decided we needed light because it was kind of dark under there, and of course, had we been a bit wiser, we probably would have looked for like a flashlight or an electric lantern, but the first thing we happened upon was a book of matches. Okay, so you see where this is heading. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, what we did, um, we wanted to make, um, you know, a more authentic camping experience, and we figured, what better way? You know, than using matches, and so we crawled under the table and we proceeded to light a match and kind of enjoy the warm glow of the light that it proceeded, and then did a second one and then a third one, and then I think the match matches ran out, and so I thought to myself, okay, we need more matches. Obviously, thinking really clearly at this time, and of course, now how many of you had gas stoves growing up? So, if you have a gas stove, what have you got in your kitchen? I've got a box of kitchen matches in the drawer. So I go upstairs to where I know my mom keeps her drawer of kitchen matches and I slide open the drawer. My hand is reaching in. Just then my mom comes around the corner and she asks what any parent would at that point in time, which is of course, "Why on earth are you getting out the matches? What do you need them for?" I said, "Okay, mom. No no, no big deal." And mom, if you're watching online, I apologize. <laughs> um I explained that we were camping and that we, you know, that I and I promised to use the matches really carefully. But we needed light for our campsite, so needless to say, uh, she was not impressed with my suggestion, and she very forcefully explained to me that lighting matches inside under old blankets and sleeping bags was both unsafe and unwise, and that we were very fortunate that we had not set the house on fire. Um, And then she uttered the words that every child fears to hear in a situation like that. Go upstairs and wait in your room until your father gets home. <laughs> um, so I honestly don't remember how the conversation with my father later that day went exactly or what punishment I received. I just remember how angry and concerned my mother looked and how awful it felt waiting upstairs for my father to get home from work. Okay, so hold on to that story. We will revisit that story later. Um, now... I've been told that when you're speaking, you're supposed to make your main points at the front so you know what to expect. So I'm going to put things out of order here. I'm going to let you know what three main takeaways are going to be so you can just file them away for later use. Are you ready? So point one, sin has consequences both for us and for those around us. Okay. Point two, because of this, we must take sin extremely seriously. And then three, we are called to be salt and to live at peace with those that are around us, with one another. All right, so, continuing on, you're probably wondering what on earth does that have to do with anything. Um, Before we jump into today's passage, I think it's important for me to kind of set the scene, because my conviction as far as how we read and understand Scripture is Scripture is best understood in context. And we've been going through the book of Mark for quite a while now, and we're now a little more than halfway through. And so I want to kind of set the scene and make sure that we're clear about what the surrounding text has said and how this passage fits into the larger message of the narrative of the book of Mark. And I think that's really important. And so just by way of review, over the past few weeks, we've been working our way through a section of Mark that many commentators refer to as the journey to Jerusalem. This portion of scripture runs from Mark 8, through Mark 10:52. Now this morning, we'll be focusing on Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. You can get that ready if you want. Um, but way back in Mark 1.14, Jesus began his ministry in Galilee. This is right after his baptism and temptation in the wilderness. And he remains in the region near and around Galilee from then through Mark 8.26. Uh, he declares the kingdom of God is at hand. He calls his disciples. He teaches the crowds. He performs numerous miracles. He casts out demons. And he chooses to strategically call and invest in 12 specific followers, his apostles. Then in Mark 8.27, Jesus and his, and his disciples head north to Caesarea Philippi. I think we have a map up here that's partially blocked by the scenery, but I think we only need the north part anyway. You can kind of see Galilee up there, and you can kind of see then up into what is now sort of you know, Syria and the Golan Heights, you see Caesarea Philippi, which is outside of proper Israel, and then Mount Hermon up there, the very northern part. Um, and that's as far north as they get, as far as we know, during his earthly ministry. Uh, so then, you know, when they, from Caesarea Philippi, they continue to, again, a high mountain nearby, probably Mount Hermon, and that's where Peter, James, and John witnessed the transfiguration. Uh, so again, when they reach that farther north part, that marks a key turning point in Mark's gospel, both geographically and, more importantly, thematically. Um, so basically, from then on, Jesus and his disciples will work their way steadily southward back to Galilee and then on down to Jericho and then Jerusalem. There, Jesus will initially be welcomed as a coming king with joyous shouts of, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which we celebrate, of course, on Palm Sunday. And then a week later, well, less than a week later, he'll be betrayed, arrested, and beaten. And that same crowd will instead shout, crucify him, which we'll commemorate during Easter. Uh, So, of course, his disciples at this point in time are expecting him to go to Jerusalem for a coronation, but instead they're going for a crucifixion. And they're coming to realize that, and Jesus is beginning to teach that. You know, maybe what they expected and what's actually going to happen might be quite different. So the action in the portion of Scripture from Mark 8.27 up, you know, up through Mark 9.40 is driven by several key questions, either asked by Jesus or posed to Jesus by one of the 12. And Jesus seems to be focused on preparing the 12 to lead the church, since his remaining time with them is short. Uh, So this part of Mark's narrative does two main things. First, it paints an increasingly vivid picture of Jesus' identity, mission, and expectations. And secondly, it shows that his disciples continue to fundamentally misunderstand his identity, mission, and expectations. They just don't get it. And we're invited along with them to ponder those truths and to let them sink into our minds and hearts, as they will eventually into his disciples'. So first, you know, let's look at that really important question, who is Jesus? And we started this a couple weeks ago when we have Peter's famous confession when he asks, of course, who do, who do men say that I am and who do you say that I am? So Jesus is revealed not only as a prophet and a teacher, but as the promised Messiah and the Son of God. As far as Jesus' mission, Jesus' mission is more than just declaring the kingdom, working signs and wonders, and gaining followers, which he had been up to that point. He begins to tell them that he must fulfill all that is written of him in the Old Testament prophets. This includes his arrest, suffering, death, and resurrection. And then he's clarifying his expectations of what it means to truly be someone who follows him. Those who follow Jesus are expected to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. They are called to lose their lives for the sake of the gospel, and in doing so, their lives will be saved. They are expected to humbly serve rather than putting themselves first, and are to welcome the seemingly weak and powerless. And they are expected to to avoid division and to be unified with others who are doing the work of the kingdom. These things are all being revealed through Jesus' teaching to the twelve at this time. So now we're kind of up to last week. Um, So as Pastor Ken discussed last week, in order to be great in the kingdom, we must turn away from pride and selfishness and use our lives in humble service to others. When we do so, we are following in the footsteps of Jesus. So immediately before our passage this morning, we have the following verse, Mark 9.41, which says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. What this tells us is that any service done in Jesus' name will be rewarded, even something as seemingly insignificant as taking someone a cup of water. What makes such acts laudable is that they are done in Jesus' name. I take this to mean that they are done in a way that is consistent with his character and that they are performed ultimately as acts of service to him. We were created to experience restored fellowship with God and unbroken relationship with one another in his glorious and eternal kingdom. In this life, The path to greatness passes through the valley of humility and suffering, but it will be worth it. We will be rewarded for our acts of humble service to others for the sake of the kingdom. All right, so now that we understand the context that we're in, uh, it's time for us to then move into today's passage. We're ready to hear what it has to say to us. And so, with that, I want to begin with a question that the text naturally suggests and we've discussed a bit What is the opposite of humility and sacrificial service to others? And of course the answer is pride and selfishness. Uh, These can manifest themselves in many ways and we've seen examples in each of the repeated failures of the disciples throughout Mark's Gospel account. We see them arguing with each other, posturing for position and being exclusionary toward those outside their group. When we fall into sinful actions and attitudes like these, we are in grave spiritual peril. Our sin has consequences for others. As it says in Mark 9, 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it will be better for him to if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. These are pretty harsh and sobering words. Now, our culture is highly individualistic. So we tend to think about the consequences of sin primarily in terms of how it impacts us and our personal relationship with God, kind of the vertical aspect of sin. And that certainly is important and true. However, in this passage, another important consequence of sin is in view. Since we live in community with others, our sins have a negative impact on those around us, especially those who are younger in the faith. In this passage, the word translated as little ones in Greek is the word mikros. Uh, It means small or little in terms of size, stature, length, space, age, time, quantity, or rank. It's a really flexible word. Uh, But this term, as it's used here, almost certainly refers to those who are little, not in terms of their physical age, not young people, but those who are little in terms of where they are in their faith journey. A second kind of linguistic point um, is the word that's translated as sin. Uh, There's a little bit more going on if we look at that word carefully. The word that most of your Bibles translate as sin is actually the Greek word scandalizo, from which we get the word scandal or scandalize. You all know what a scandal is, right? Um, So it's literal meaning, it can be used both as an active verb and a passive verb. As an active verb, it means to entrap or snare someone into something, maybe like a sting operation. Um, But it's here used passively, which means to cause someone to stumble, to take offense or to fall away. So we're acting on them passively. Those who are spiritually young look up to and emulate their spiritual leaders. They are vulnerable to being injured by those in positions of authority who set a bad example through sinful behavior. And remember, Jesus is focusing on teaching the 12 here who are in a position of leadership and authority. So I want to return to my previous story. There's one thing I didn't tell you about the details of the story, and that is my friend Jesse um, is a few years younger than my brother and I. And of course, any of you have a younger friend that hung out with you when you were growing up? So kind of what's that like? Well, the little kids want to do what the big kids are doing, right? That's just kind of how things go. So because we were older and because it was our house, whenever we played together, Jesse pretty much went along with whatever my brother and I did. I also think that he kind of looked up to us. I hope so. Um, I'm not sure we were really being looked up to, but he did. And so although, thankfully, nothing tragic happened in my story, I didn't burn the house down, didn't injure anyone, but my actions and decisions led Jesse to be in a dangerous situation. By following my example, he could have come to serious harm. My actions could have had terrible consequences, not just for me, but for someone who looked up to me as an example. So that raises an important question. If I think about my life today, the actions, behavior, and character that I exhibit, what sort of example am I setting for those who look up to me? You might ask yourself the same question. Whether we realize it or not, those around us are watching. Our actions and attitudes greatly influence others, especially those of us who happen to be in positions of authority. This applies doubly to me as someone who serves as an elder here at Salem, and in case you don't know, my day job is as a mathematics professor at Minnesota State University, Moorhead. As my students observe my life, I hope that they are seeing positive things that are worthy of being emulated, but I suspect they also see my pride anger, impatience, perfectionism, workaholic tendencies, and other unhelpful qualities that I exhibit. So what sort of influence am I having on them? And in what ways might I be causing them to stumble because they see and take on my behavior and attitudes? So according to this passage, anything that we do that hinders others' belief in Jesus is worthy of severe punishment. Those who witness or who are victimized by our sinful behavior could follow our bad example and stumble into sin themselves or even leave or fall away from the community of faith. How serious do we take this? Probably not as seriously as Jesus does in this passage. Uh, So I have a picture of a millstone here. Um, I don't don't, don't know that the millstone he refers to is exactly like this, but probably pretty close. Um, So in case you don't know, we don't really use, we still have mills, but they're more like, Machinery these days are not like actual physical rocks that we roll around. So I kind of wanted to show you what one looked like. But the large millstone referred to here is a huge stone that was used to grind grain, various types of grain or produce that needed to be chopped up. Um, Probably large enough that it actually had to be turned by a donkey or some other beast of burden. So according to Josephus, drowning people by hanging a millstone around their necks was a form of execution at least occasionally practiced by the Romans. So Jesus would have been referred to something that perhaps they actually witnessed. I mean, they lived around Galilee near a lake. Uh, There is water and probably millstones available. And it was considered to be a particularly shameful way to be executed because the victim generally would not have a proper burial, because the whole point is they sink to the bottom and they don't come back up. Kind of like the mobsters that give you cement shoes, right? (laughs) All right. um, So according to this passage, causing others to stumble or fall away is so terrible that it would be better to face execution by drowning than to be guilty of such an offense. That shows us how seriously Jesus takes this type of behavior and result. So do we take our sin this seriously? And if we do, then how do we respond? So I do want to give kind of a brief word to those of you who have spiritual influence over others. And that really, Not just to those who are pastors and elders. It appears it applies pretty broadly. I mean, you might be a parent, you might be a lug leader, you might be even a supervisor at work. If you're in a position of power in any way, then you have influence and you have authority, and we're accountable for how we use that influence. And so I want to call you to be extremely careful and honest with yourself about the example that you are setting in your life. What do people see in and through your life? I also wanna say a word to those of you who may have been hurt in the past by leaders in the church. I'm guessing that many of you sitting in that room have had painful experiences and consequences as a result of sins of people who are in authority. And I wanna tell you that God sees and he knows and he cares about what happened to you and he, there will be accountability. Yeah, so just bear that in mind. All right, so let's move on. Uh, I want to read Mark 9, verses 43 through 47. I'm going to take it all as one big chunk because they kind of fit together. It's a parallel passage, and what it says is this. It says, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. These are hard words, and I want to unpack them a little bit. And let me start by saying that Jesus is not actually suggesting that we avoid sin by removing parts of your body. We're not going to have machetes in the back for you to use after the service. So what is he saying? He is using vivid and violent imagery to describe the seriousness and importance of our battle against sin. In reality, sin originates in our hearts, not in our body parts. According to Mark 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile the person. To deal with sin effectively, we need to change our hearts, not wound our bodies. However, I don't believe that the specific body parts that Jesus mentions here are random. Take note of the role of each body part that each body part that he mentioned plays. So what our hands have to do with? They're sort of what we do or how we perform actions in life. How about our feet? That's where we go. And then with our eyes, that has to do with how we perceive and evaluate the world around us. Uh, and Luke 11, 34-35 says this, When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If we are living according to kingdom principles, everything we do, everywhere we go, and everything we think and perceive about the world around us will be consistent with the kingdom values of love, humility, servanthood, and sacrifice. Now, in reality, this is often not the case. We all have things that we need to repent of. We all have habits and attitudes that lead us astray. Because of the toxic effects of sin on both ourselves and those who we are in community with, we are called to ruthless self-examination. So how seriously do you take sin? What habits and behaviors do you need to repent from? In Colossians 3, verses 5 through 10, it says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly to you, sexual immorality, impurity, And in Romans 6, verses 12 through 14, it says a similar thing. It says, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. And that last part is important, because I think it's easy when we're thinking about sin to really get pulled into a performance mindset. I'll say more about that later. But the reality of grace is important to how we deal with and understand how we respond to the very real and discouraging sin we see in our lives when we engage in self-examination. All right, so, thinking back to our story from before, why do you think that my mom was so angry with me on what I had done? Was it because I disobeyed her? Was it because I broke some arbitrary rule? We didn't have a rule for that, by the way. Well, maybe we should have. In um, holding me accountable for my actions was her main goal to show that she was like, more powerful than I was or to make me feel guilty for what I had done or to convince me that I was a terrible person? And I would say certainly not. Ultimately, her anger was rooted in the fact that she loves me and wants what's best for me. I was doing something foolish and extremely dangerous. Her goal was to help me understand the potentially disastrous consequences of my actions for me, for my brother, for my friend, and for the entire household. Her goal was to help me never want to do anything like that again. And ultimately, her goal was to help me turn away from foolish, self-destructive behavior so that I would live life and live it well. Now, they say that those who play with fire eventually get, get burned. And in our passage, Jesus gives us a similar warning. You know, he's talking about what awaits those who are thrown into hell, or literally the word Gehenna, where their worm does not die and fire is not quenched. And in that verse, in verse 48, he's actually quoting from a longer passage back in Isaiah 66. In verse 24, it says this. It says, They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall, have, they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. This is a picture of the terrible fate that awaits those who reject the salvation available through Jesus, who are unable or unwilling to enter into the kingdom. It is extremely important to note that the focus of this teaching is on what we must do in order to enter life, life in the kingdom, life as it is meant to be, as we were truly created for. This is the goal, not simply avoiding punishment. Entering life is the goal. Now, that being said, we don't spend a lot of time, I think, these days talking about the concept of hell. Um, we're going to go there today because it's in the passage. And so we really need to confront these words and these warnings from Jesus seriously. And so I do want to do a little bit of an aside on the doctrine of hell. So the word that's literally used in the Greek text is actually actually Gehenna. Uh, In Scripture, Gehenna is the transliteration into Greek of an older Hebrew name of a place called Gai Ben Hinnom. You can read a little bit about that uh, in your study guide if you have the study guide. It's a narrow ravine south of Jerusalem where the refuse from the city was burned. It was a place with a history of particularly vile idolatry. They came to symbolize God's judgment of the, for their, of the wicked for their continued rebellion against him and their future destruction. The place that our culture, and hence most biblical translations, generally now refer to as hell. So what is hell anyway? So according to Wayne Gruden's systematic theology, it says this, hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. Um, and of course, this is an EFCA church, and so I figured what better place to go when really thinking about what our formal doctrine is, is to go to our official doctrine statement. So here's the EFCA Statement of Faith, entry on response and eternal destiny. I'm going to read it in, I'm going to read it in its entirety. It says, we believe that God commands everyone everywhere to believe the gospel by turning to him in repentance and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that God will raise the dead bodily and judge the world assigning the unbeliever to condemnation and eternal conscious punishment, and the believer to eternal blessedness with joy with the Lord in the new heaven and the new earth to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen. And sort of to bring us into this a little bit deeper, I want to give you a few quotations from men who are wiser than me, um, people who are wiser than me, about the doctrine of hell. Uh, First, another longer quote, quote, quote from Wayne Gruden's Systematic Theology. He says, the reason it is hard for us to think about the doctrine of hell is because God has put into our hearts a portion of his own love for people created in his image, even his love for sinners who rebel against him. As long as we are in this life, and as long as we see and think about others who need to hear the gospel and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, it should cause us great distress and agony of spirit to think about eternal punishment. Yet we must realize that whatever God in his wisdom has ordained and taught in Scripture is right. Therefore, we must be careful that we do not hate this doctrine or rebel against it, but rather we should seek, as far as we are able, to come to the point where we acknowledge that eternal punishment is good and right, because in God there is no unrighteousness at all. I'm also going to share a couple quotes from C.S. Lewis. Uh, First, he says, There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than the doctrine of hell. If it lay in my power, but it has the support of scripture and especially our Lord's own words. It has always been held by the Christian church and it has the support of reason. He also says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that, is, that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. So rightly understood, the doctrine of hell serves as an important and sobering reminder of the judgment that is to come for all of us, but also to a reminder of the salvation that is available through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Here in this passage, Jesus is pointing us away from punishment towards life, which ultimately means us living kingdom life both now and in eternity. It is extremely important to remember that as we think about sin in our lives, we turn away from sin not because we are being saved. We turn away from sin, let me say this I'm going very carefully. Okay. We turn away from sin because we are being saved, not because we are trying to earn our salvation. Salvation comes through grace, by faith. But now that we have a new identity, our calling is to turn away from sin and allow God to sanctify us through our lives. All right, so we have one more verse in our passage today. Actually, well, one more section, two verses. It says this, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So with that, I do have one more story to tell you. Um, Many of you know that cooking is one of my hobbies. Um, I consider myself to be a pretty good cook. Uh, you can find out for yourself if you bid on one of the pies that I'm you know, giving for the uh, dinner theater auction, by the way. Just a little plug there. Um, now, I hope this story doesn't dissuade you from bidding. <laughs> because I'm gonna, when, I was in, so, so when I was in seventh grade, um, I don't know if they still had these or not, but we used to take what we these call these six-week exploratory courses, and one of them was in home economics. Um, and so the home economics class had like a sewing unit and it had a cooking unit. I'm going to talk about the cooking unit. So in our cooking unit, one of our projects was to make tortillas. Anyone made a homemade tortilla? Pretty fun, pretty good. So oh, we, were, we were given a recipe and then all the ingredients that we needed. And then all I had to do was just follow the recipe, combine things together, and then we we're supposed to roll the dough into small balls. Our teacher had a tortilla press, and we would sort of drop them in there, They'd flatten them, put it in the fry pan. Hot, fresh tortillas, nothing better than that, right? Um, I mean, and uh, in my opinion, you know, hot tortillas, you know, freshly made ones, are about one of the greatest things to eat in the world, especially if you fill them with carne asada, but that's another story, okay. Um, yeah. You know. But during that class, um, when I made my dough, I was careful to follow each step in the directions very carefully and precisely, except I did make one key mistake. And the recipe, uh, the recipe called for a half teaspoon of salt. Uh, I didn't read it carefully enough, apparently, and so I put in a half a cup of salt. (laughs) True story, (laughs) Okay, Um, And as I was mixing my dough, I kind of looked at my dough, looked at my neighbor's dough, looked at my dough, looked at my neighbor's dough. My dough did not look quite right. But I mean, this is an assignment, and our teacher was like a stickler, like, whatever you made, you had to roll it up in balls, and she was going to fry it. And so it's like, well, I got what I got. So I brought it up there, and I will never forget the horrifying smell (laughs) of those tortillas being scorched on that griddle. And then I think she actually made me take a bite. <laughs> I mean, you've had that teacher, right? All of you have. It's just, it was not good. Just suffice to say, it was not good. Um, you know, so apparently that salt had lost its saltiness. It mean, didn't lose its saltiness, but it was no good for anything. It was good only to be trampled underfoot, all right? So those are not good tortillas. Uh, and I did not get a very good grade on that assignment. Um, so Matthew 5.13 says this, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And in Matthew 7.15-20 it says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So the question for us is this, how does your life taste? Is it like a well-made tortilla, warm, soft, seasoned with just the right amount of salt? Or is it like my batch of tortillas, harsh, bitter, and not worth tasting? Our purpose in life is to bear fruit to be the salt of the earth, and to live at peace with one another. We were created and we have been redeemed in order to demonstrate shalom, true kingdom living to those around us. So as we struggle against the sin in our lives, here are a couple of important things that I want you to keep in mind. First, following God because we were afraid of going to hell is much like how you drive your car after you notice a police officer is right behind you. Anyone been there? Okay. Yeah, you uh yeah, you know, while he's there, your hands are at 10 and 2, you drive one or two miles under the speed limit. Each maneuver you perform is as perfect and careful as you can make it. But then how do you drive when you notice that he's taken a right hand turn and is no longer behind you? It may take a minute or two, but what happens? Well, you just go back to how you normally drive. <laughs> um so lasting transformation comes from interchange, from having a new nature, not by having some cosmic hall monitor looking at you to judge what you're going to do. Secondly, the goal is not to try to will ourselves to stop sinning and bearing fruit. How many of you plan to plant in the garden this year? So when you do that, do you like go out and like talk to your tomato plants, like, make tomatoes, make tomatoes? Um, you know, plants don't bear fruit by trying hard. So why do they bear fruit? They bear fruit because it is their internal nature to do so. As we live life in fellowship with Jesus and in community with one another, throughout through the work of the Holy Spirit, we will slowly be pruned, nurtured and transformed into the fruit bearing witnesses that we were created to be. And we're just called to cooperate with that process. That's an outworking of the internal change that happens to us through our salvation, through the work of the Holy Spirit. We grow and do works and turn away from sin because we're saved. We're not saved because of our works. All right, so here's a couple things to keep in mind, just some applications to take with you. How should we respond to what really is a very challenging and potentially discouraging passage? So there's two key things that I want to challenge you to do. First thing, take sin seriously. Understand that sin has desired consequences both for us and for others. Seek forgiveness from those around us who we've wronged and led astray. And ask the Holy Spirit to reveal sinful actions and attitudes that need to be removed from your life. Secondly, be salty. Humbly serve and love those around you, showing what kingdom life looks like. And as you have opportunity, share with others about the hope that you have through Jesus and his kingdom. So let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your word and for loving loving us enough to warn us about the serious consequences of sin, both to us and to those around us. Help us to turn to you by faith, to repent of our sinful attitudes and actions, and allow you to transform us into the good-tasting, fruit-bearing peacemakers that draw others to your kingdom and serve as a blessing to those around us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.